Alright, welcome to Stage 4 Show, started by a Stage 4 Cancer Conqueror, web mission to save one million life with public education, inspiring stories, and technology innovation. Today we have John Hegel, who is a favorite sculptor, is Rodin, because Rodin really brings humanity to the stone. So John, who are you? <laughs> Well, I do love Rodin. He's a f wonderful sculptor. My first stop, if I ever go to Paris, is the Rodin Museum. And I'm very fortunate that there's actually a small Rodin collection here in the Bay Area at Stanford. So I visit that regularly as well. Yeah. So John, welcome to your show. So tell our audience, who are you? Well, I'm, uh, I've been in Silicon Valley for 40 years. I've uh, been the founder of two tech startups. I've, um, I was a senior executive, for those of you who can remember that far back, with a company <laughs> called Atari in the video game business. Uh -huh. I was a partner at McKinsey and Company for 16 years and founded their e-commerce practice back in the 1993. Um, and about 12 years ago, was recruited into Deloitte to set up a new research center called the Center for the Edge. And I've been running that research center for the past 12 years. Right, and so I find the name quite interesting. Why do you specifically call it Center on the, ed on the Edge? Center right? for the Edge. Center for the Edge. Right, right. 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 Well, how did the name come out? In, in it what was, was the decision-making process? <laughs> well, it has many meanings. I think one of uh, our key charter is to identify emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda but are not. And our belief is those emerging opportunities tend to be visible first on some kind of edge. It could be geographic edges like emerging economies. It could be demographic edges like younger generations coming into the workforce or the, the marketplace. Uh, it could be technology edges, but mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time exploring edges to see those opportunities before anyone else sees them. And um, also another meaning of edge is if you can see the opportunities and address them early, yeah. uh, you can get an edge in terms of an advantage relative to everyone else. So. Yeah, and so which one is your favorite? <laughs> There's a lot of meanings. No, no, I like them all. That's why I picked the name. <laughs> That's really interesting. Like, um, I love the play of words. And in just our brief conversation, I can also see uh, there's quite a bit of like both our um, you know um, appreciation. So like for example, my book is actually stage four because I'm a stage four cancer, but stage is actually beyond just cancer. Mm. You know because it's the stage of life, stage of the professional life, stage of um, your uh, you know um, personal life, but then also the stage of performance, and there's the stage of cancer. There's the stage of aging. You know, you see, like the words can uh, mean so much, and it'll be the, you know, it's often the best when you have a word that you know can mean different things. You know, like in terms of blending perspective, <laughs> yeah. And so. I also love it because it's uh, one of the things I really love is paradox. Yeah. And there's a paradox of being a center for the edge. Yeah. You're either the center or you're the edge. No. We're the center for the edge, so it's right for brings the edge. The, right. brings them together in a yeah. I yeah. Now you mentioned it because like my company is called Dance for Healing, 
So like I choose four, you know, kind of like specific. Mm. There's a purpose for that, and it's, it's also a, a process of creation. Mm. You know, there's a purpose, and then you while you're doing the dance, you created that feeling, and it's kind of like same thing for you. That's right? it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. That's really cool. So, um, John, so um, how did you get started? Like, you know, it seems like you gone through the startup, and then you went into the corporations. And that is very much aligned with uh, my personal, uh, you know, experience uh, because I, I used to work in large corporations, and then because of my stage four cancer, I completely abandoned my uh, high-paid corporate career trying to innovate in healthcare. No. And so I love to see like you kind of actually coming the other way, right? Being a staff founder and then going to corporations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always had a. Um a tension that I've had to deal with, which is on the one side, um, when I look back, the, the most satisfying experiences I've had were starting a company and being able to see an idea become a reality and be able to take the credit for it, hugely satisfying. The challenge for me was in both the startups that I did, they became all-consuming. I wow. lost any sense of the rest of the world, personal mm -hmm. life. Everything was about the startup and making it successful. Right. And on the other side, one of my interests or what helps me uh, is in consulting the ability to see many different situations, problems, people, yeah. and be constantly challenged by new things in a variety of, of business areas. And I've always had that question of, well, which do I do? Do I do startups or do I do consulting? Yeah. And the way I resolved it, and it's, it's worked for me, is I did a startup within a much larger consulting firm. And oh, so I see what you The saying. Center for the Edge was, yeah. I started it. There yeah. was nothing there. I created it, but it's part of a consulting firm, and I get the opportunity yeah. to interact with many clients around the world so yeah it's the combination yeah. that really yeah is. so it's like um, it sounds like it's kind of like you're on the giant shoulder like right like you have you have the freedom to do it and then at the same time you have this larger resources behind you exactly okay yeah, so how is that dynamic work though because I used to work at at and interactive R&D which mm. is this baby sister organization of the large AT&T labs and I have to say, I, I do definitely see a lot of politics, sorry, at <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, innovation is challenging in the corporate world, um, you know, especially my first iPhone app was featured in the New York Times mm. without any marketing. And then the funny backstory is it was supposed to be like a white label, you know, to help bring gather data for the research team at the big labs. Um, and then because it got onto New York Times, and then you know it was all over the place. Like you know, it was on Gizmodo, it was on Yahoo News, it was on NBC, and then all of a sudden we now had an official label in the App Store. <laughs> mm. That was like AT and T in R and D because before it was not. It was not label. It was supposed to be a white label research app. Right. You know, isn't right. that funny? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Excellent. Yeah. And then the next article came out, which is funny because my <clears throat> app is called Have to Pee, literally helping people finding bathrooms. No. Oh. It's one of the first crowdsourcing app that launched, um, you know, in the Apple App Store. This is 2009. Mm. The next article came out. It say AT and T want to help you pee. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right? Isn't that funny? Yeah, so I love to hear, like, um, what's your perspective, like, you know, in trying to, like, you know, how do you manage, like, 
dynamic, you know, like I, in between innovation and then the large corporation, which typically move like a large elephant, you know, not to judge them, but it's a reality. No, well, <laughs> that's another meaning of edge. It's why we call ourselves the Center for the Edge. We are on the edge yeah. of the much larger company and uh, part of the negotiation for me joining was that I would have autonomy in terms of picking the people, yeah. picking the research topics, and so I'm relatively insulated from the broader organization in that context, yeah. but, but then it's very helpful to have a much larger organization that can help take our research out to clients and engage yeah. with them, and you know, so I've... Um, try to navigate both both sides yeah and so in your personal uh, like say you know you wanted to share this experience for other people who wanted to innovate in large corporate settings because they have a passion to give back you know yeah. to the community to the um, society that they care about how do they what are the things they need to do in order to make that happen like in terms of human dynamics, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I guess a couple of things, at least in my experience. One is I think it's important to have a very senior person in the core organization who becomes your champion yeah. and will help to protect you from the pressures of the larger organization. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on the other side, I think it's being very thoughtful about what are ways you can measure your impact that is meaningful to the large organization and where you can start to have impact very quickly. So mm -hmm. you're in a very short period of time can point to things and say, well, we achieved that. Yeah. There's more to come, you know, but it starts to build that sense of credibility that this is really worth supporting and, wow. and oh, funding. Wow, that's really so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you're saying that it's important to get um, a champion that you know fully support you at really senior level. Yeah, um, that's actually very much aligned with um, what I just interviewed Bill O'Connor, who's done a lot of work with large corporation in trying to figure out innovation challenges in corporation. It's exactly the same thing that my set. Mm -hmm. Like you need to see if the boss buy in or not. <laughs> right. No. Right. Yeah. And then the second thing it sounds like you were saying is like it has to be aligned with the big strategic focus of the whole company. Yeah, you have to find some intersection. It's not, yeah. I mean, if you're doing something innovative and creative, you're likely yeah. to be targeting new areas, new forms of impact, but at the same time being thoughtful about what is the impact that will matter to the core organization and starting to measure that and show show results quickly so that you gain, yeah. gain that support. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and then um, throughout this whole journey, is it any um, other like personal challenges come up for you? Personal challenges, uh, <laughs> lots of personal challenges. Um, I, you know, I th I have uh, I had a difficult childhood. Mm. Um, I was uh, brought up to believe that my needs did not matter. That mm. it was all about how to address other people's needs. Um, and uh, while well, I think at one level that helped me to be more aware of what the needs of other people are, I was always pushing my needs to the side yeah. and it took me a long time to believe, come to realize and believe that my needs really mattered and mm -hmm. that I needed to be doing things that would help others but at the same time 
address what I what I needed. Yeah, well, I think that's really important. Like for me, um, I learned the hard lesson. Like if I can't, you know, like really take care of myself internally, I can't last. I can't create an impact. And in in some ways, I have to learn. Uh, I used to be like afraid to ask people because I feel like that appeared to be very selfish. Mm -hmm. um, but then I learned that actually, if I think about when I push myself to ask, when I push myself, when I take care of myself, it's actually a contribution to the community that I wanted to create an impact for them. Because mm. if I'm down, like I can't do anything, right? right, right yeah, right. exactly. So right. that sort of self-care, self-awareness, you know, it's really important. And it's really looking inside to find, I've become a strong proponent and it's based on some of the research we've done that one of the key um, motivators for success is finding your passion and a very specific form of passion. We call it the passion of the explorer. But it's finding something that really excites you and where you're willing to take risk to address it, where you're driven to connect with others to help you get more and more impact in that area, and where you're actually excited by challenges, not stressed by them. And so part of my journey was ultimately finding that I did have a passion. I had not taken the trouble to really articulate it or reflect on it, but in looking... What is your passion? <laughs> <laughs> the passion is to help bring people together on platforms so yeah. they can achieve more of their potential. Wow. And it's all about helping to bring people together to achieve more potential. And right, right, it's community building. Yeah, I know yeah. like yesterday when, when we had this uh, discussion, we were talking about Dog Zoo's um, quote, right? Yes. Like the best leader is when the work is done, the project's finished. <laughs> you know, the people say, we all did it all by ourselves. <laughs> and then um, unfortunately, just based on reading a lot of like leadership books and I personally gone through this whole one year of uh, leadership training. What I realized is that we're looking in the current, you know, whether it's corporate world or like entrepreneurship, a lot of leaders doesn't realize that, you know, oftentimes they're trying to be the one who speaks as loud as possible, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And then think that, you know, like that's the leadership or like all they would do, like doing, like leading by doing which is not effective either because you're only one person. If you do everything by yourself, good luck, you know, it's not, you're not going to scale, right? You know, so uh, it's really an art, yeah. No, we're trapped, I think, by a very conventional, traditional view of leadership and certainly in modern business, which is uh, the mark of a strong leader is somebody who has the answer to all the questions. No matter what the question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. That's a strong leader. My belief is we're in, entering into a world where the key is to motivate others to find their passion and to learn faster. And the kind of leader we need in that world is somebody who has the most powerful questions mm. and who will freely admit they don't have an answer yeah. and, and ask for help. Yeah. Because then it inspires and motivates others to contribute, to come together and, right, and right. take initiative versus right. just sitting there waiting to be told what yeah. to do. Yeah, like, you know, it also sounds like it's like being comfortable to share your vulnerability too. Because you just are not a human being, right? If you're always trying to appear to be tough, 
when your um, people struggle, they're not comfortable come to talk to you, mm. you know, because they're going to be like, I got to put my best face on, right. you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then there's a lot of inauthenticity in that, that, you know, it's just going to be impact, eventually impact the team dynamic in the work. No, yeah. well, I don't, don't think it's an accident that surveys have been done showing that uh, all, in all of our institutions around the world, trust is eroding. We're getting, mm -hmm. we're having less and less trust in these institutions. And I think one of the reasons, there are many forces, but one reason is we have leaders who say they have the answers to all the questions. And we know that's not possible. You can't have the answer yeah. to all the questions. So if you're saying that, you either don't understand or you're lying. In, e <laughs> in either case, <laughs> I don't trust you. Yeah. And so I think one of the ways of rebuilding trust, to your point, is yeah. expressing vulnerability yeah. and asking for help and yeah. saying, you know, here's something yeah. really exciting. Yeah. I'm not sure how we could do it, but let's try. Let's yeah. work for it. Yeah, and also like, you know, being a real human being, not just like, you know, you're the boss, whatever, you know, also creating that sort of, you know, bonding experience with the team, allow them to stand up, you know, because you might not know, but they probably know. Right. And then now they feel, oh, wow, like I could actually also taking on a leadership role, right? So like, you know, this is why like, I love Logic's code is like, if you can empower each person to be the best version of leader they can be. Leadership start within, yeah. right? You know, and you're gonna have a high performance team, right? No, and another thing that, based on our research, we've discovered is that the highest, the teams that accelerate their learning and performance improvement, are constantly challenging each other. And I think again, in the institutions we have today. The, the desire is to have everybody sit around a table and smile and yes, say yes, and you know, <laughs> agree and move forward because that's efficient. That's the way we move quickly versus challenging each other. Yeah. And, and it's challenging each other with respect. You're yeah. doing it because you share a common desire to get right. to a higher impact right. versus today yeah. in many cultures and corporate cultures, if you're challenging somebody, it's to put them down and build yourself yeah. up. Yeah. No, that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's still very common colony. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, in large corporation, like, I, I am trying to, like, innovate in healthcare by bringing, you know, creative arts to be more to those patients who stuck at home often. Um, and patient loves it, but then trying to figure out the healthcare navigations and then trying to figure out, you know, like, cause unfortunately a lot of these people working in healthcare who's decision makers, they mm. were there for like 20, 30 years. Right. Uh, right? You know this. No. And so, you know, for them, <clears throat> it's like if they don't understand fully about innovation, they'll be like, this is cool, this is awesome. But then, you know, if they have multiple things they have to decide, they will feel more comfortable doing something they're familiar with. You know, because handling something they're not necessarily familiar with could be an exposure for vulnerability that they're just not good at doing that, yeah. right? So there's certainly a lot of these mindset that I see in healthcare. Uh, I'm sure you probably see that in your other area, and I know you wrote multiple books, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. I think it's, uh, and again, it's one of the reasons we put so much emphasis on the need to f discover and cultivate and pursue your passion. Because the people who have this passion of the explorer, as we describe it, are those who are driven to take risks. Yeah. They're, they're constantly wanting to have higher and higher impact 
they don't want to just do what they've always done. They're constantly wanting yeah. to. Those are the doers and yeah. the, you know and the go getters, right? Exactly. Hey, Stage 4 Show fan! I hope you love this interview. COVID-19 made me realize that wisdom from these top industry leaders is invaluable for dealing with uncertainty and building resilience. When you share our show, you're helping change lives too. I love you, and I'll see you in the next show. Stage 4 is an educational arm of Dance for Healing. Check out our COVID-19 initiative at www.stage.com iv.org and www.dns4healing.com Stage 4 show started by a Stage 4 Cancer Conqueror with a mission to save one million life with public education, inspiring stories, and technology innovation. Today we have John Hagel. So, All right. so we were talking about future work. Um, so John, you know, can you share what's the new book that you just, your research project? And then there's also a book, right? Yeah. yeah. So the research project is looking at the question that we think people should be asking about the future of work, but generally are not. Everybody's talking about reskilling, the gig, gig economy, all kinds of topics. The most basic question, though, is the most important one, which is what should work be? Mm -hmm. What could work be? The way work is defined in most of our large institutions today, it's tightly specified tasks, routine tasks that are done over and over again. That kind of work is exactly what machines are increasingly yeah. able to do. Yes. And so I think it opens up the question, rather than just saying, okay, we get rid of the people who are doing that work, how could we redefine work for them yeah. so that they could create much more value for the company and create much more meaningful work for themselves? Mm -hmm. And at the high level, the way we've framed the, the redefinition of work is it's focusing everybody on addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. Yeah. Wherever they are in the organization, whether it's a janitor in a building, supply chain manager, anywhere in the organization, focus on finding the problems and opportunities that will allow you to create more value and addressing them to create that value. And we think that's a huge untapped opportunity and it's going to be very challenging to make that shift, but ultimately we think it will drive huge value for the company and much more meaningful work for the individual. So, you know, it's really interesting to hear you say that because um, I am actually on the board of International Lamp for Africa Humanity Plus. Mm. In 2000, uh, I think it was 2013, um, I went to Beijing to help um, one of our co-directors um, to organize the Beijing conference. Um, and we have a, a panel specific discussions on is human going to lose value because automation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have an Australian, uh, you know, billionaire who owns multiple oil plants that mm. was kind of like debating with this other economist, you know, like it was really interesting to just to see different opinions and then 
you know, it was it was interesting. And then this is 2013, right? Like mm. it wasn't fully sort of discussed, but now we're 2019, right? Like, you know, uh, because I am sort of in this, you know, futurist movement for a while now, you know, I'm, I've been on the board for 10 years. Mm. And so for a lot of times what I've seen is just like, the evolution of like the things we already discussed 10 years ago and now like really like okay now we bring into more like major conferences mm. you know to kind of discuss and it's real like like you know there's a huge population of workers they're gonna not you know able to continue doing work or having jobs because of their education was specific designing certain tasks that was you know easily replaceable through automation right mm. Yeah, and so how do you think, you know, I think what you're saying is an untouched, you know, area, I 100% agree because a larger society is still probably 99% still in the dark, right? Yeah. yeah, like, you know, but like that transition is really tricky because, you know, how do you, well, one is the mindset, right? Yeah. The other one is like, is it any sort of revolution and like continuous education that could help these people training them for other types of skills, you know, able to get jobs, yeah. Yeah, it's another part of our work, uh, research work, is we've ended up in making a distinction. Everybody is talking about skills in the future of work. Certain skills are becoming obsolete. Yeah. You need to develop new skills. Our view is, again, there's a missed opportunity, which is to focus not on skills, but on what we call capabilities which are things that skills have value in a particular context. So it's how to operate this machine in this environment. That's a skill. Great. Yeah. Capabilities have value in every context. So an example would be curiosity. Yeah. That's a capability. Yeah. The ability to ask questions and to yeah. be constantly curious about, to learn more about your environment. Uh, imagination, creativity, empathy, there are a whole set of capabilities yeah. which we're generally ignoring and by the way often discouraging yeah. because again curiosity in the traditional work environment is a bad thing. You yeah. shouldn't be asking questions, you should be doing your work. Yeah. Questions are distracting. Yeah. So how do we cultivate those capabilities because our belief is people who really exercise those muscles and, and exercise those capabilities will actually be able to acquire whatever skills they need much more quickly yeah. than if they're just sitting there waiting to be told what's the next yeah. skill. You know, while you were talking, it was really interesting. Um, we recently also have a conference in London, Human Plus in London, and my talk started first talk about my company, you know, which is like hacking longevity with creative arts. Um, and then it ended up become Looking into Hollywood's of, um, you know, from Terminator to Wally, how Hollywood really kind of create this perception about the future robot and future the AI, mm. and then I end up showing a clip of like an iRobot where Will Smith, um, you know, the actor who's mm. playing the character in the film, asking the robot, "Can the robot draw? Can the robot tell a masterpiece?" You know, and at the end of the film, the robot. So he could draw out. <laughs> His dream, you know, was the secure the scientists kind of left for Will Smith, right? And so really interesting is like, I, you know, when, while you were talking, I feel like there's this, you know, really good work could be created. Like how do we sort of create a sustainable society where humans and then the more and more intelligence on AI and robot can coexist? 
yeah. right? Like which part of it, like you know, which function are we taking it on? Is it more the creativity, or is it more the curiosity? Is it more, you know, like like how do you kind of creating that feature? It was really interesting, isn't it? No, I think that's <laughs> the, that's the opportunity is to bring these together. I mean, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, is uh, from Pablo Picasso, the artist. Oh, and many, many years ago, uh, he said, you know, computers are useless. <laughs> All they can do is provide you with answers. Wait, Picasso said that? Yes. Wait, is that computer? There were early computers when he oh. was still alive. But yeah. I think the, the point he was making was, yes, computers can provide you with a lot of answers, yeah. but the real power is in the questions. Yes. What are the questions? Yes. And that's where we as humans have a particular yeah. you know, capability that yeah. we should be exercising and where, again, the computers can be very helpful in <laughs> providing us with the answers, but the first issue is what's the question that really wow. matters. Wow, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I appreciate Picasso a lot more like when I study art history, because my undergrad is graphic design, I had to study yeah. art history. Um, and then before I was just like, well, whatever. And then when I learned that he was someone who can paint like a Renaissance man, mm. who does really beautiful art, you know, just like any of the Renaissance painter, he chose to paint like a child, mm. right? That was like really revolutionary. Like he completely created this new idea, what is, you know, what is considered art, yes. right? And also having that there, you know, at the time, you know, like most of these people, in order to make it, they had to be, you know, like sponsored by one of the patrons, most likely is for religious purpose. That's mm. how art survived most of the early centuries, right? Right. Yeah, and so like, you know, now he's there to like make a difference is, you know, like, not really know what he might be dealing with, you know, might be, you know, struggle and die, you know, who knows, like, unfortunately, like, the case with Gauguin, right, like, couldn't sell any painting when he's alive, and then mm. as soon as he died, wow, yeah. like, all their paintings skyrocket, right. you know, so, like, that's one thing I learned, like, regardless of whether it's in the art, whether it's in innovation, you know, anything else, it's, like, dare to, like, you know, sort of, Take on your belief and they to create like a new movement, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so um, back to the audience, for those people who's interested in creating impacts, who's passionate, uh, you know, about making a differences for the future of work, for the future of collaboration, future of leaderships, uh, in this interesting human dynamics, what would be your um, wisdom or words based on what you learn from all the challenges that you learn? Oh, well, uh, there are many words, but if I had to pick, I'd say, first of all, as I've talked about, passion yeah. is, is critical. It's, it's really spending the time to explore and, and discover your own passion and then to pursue the passion. Yeah. Uh, but then it's about um, uh, pulling people to you uh, uh -huh. who, ha who share the passion or can help you in addressing the opportunities. So pull becomes... Yeah. I think more and more critical, and then it's um, curiosity is I think the other one, which is just this constant yeah. asking of questions, which will pull people yeah. to you, yeah. and the passion helps you to frame the questions because you're driven to get to that next level of impact. Yeah, it's funny. I often um, encourage people because my company offers creative arts, right? And then, you know, even though we're adopting technology to like offer this to the people stuck at home, 
But really, it's like we make technology human, mm. right? We are connecting, like we had a pattern for the AI will match people's. But really, it's like how do you kind of bring that human, you know, again, together with the technology instead of technology damaging human being and then created there's judgments about like, oh, technology's bad, right? Right, right. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how about for the younger generations, like, you know, what would be your um, tips and tools, book or recommendations uh, for them to adapt? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I have two daughters and when they were growing up, the only uh, advice I gave them in terms of their future, and this was probably not a surprise given what I've just said, is find your passion uh -huh. and don't stop until you've found it. Explore, you know, experiment with lots of different things, but find that passion that really excites you and motivates you and yeah. will encourage you to be risk-taking and then find a way to make a living from the passion. Right. It's, uh, don't just have it as a hobby on the side. Find a way to make a living from it, and that's, that's what will that's, that's determine success. That's a tricky success. one, though. Can you talk a little bit more about that? No, well, I think, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's obviously challenging in certain areas, but you know, I know people who are gardeners. Their, their passion is gardening. Yeah. Um, and they're making a pretty good living from gardening, yeah. you know, being a gardener for others, right. um, as well as for themselves. Um. So how about for, um, so like I'm highly um, empathized with the creative community, yep. just the artists, musicians, um, dance teachers, uh, therapists, who really struggle trying to make a living, and that's their passion. Yeah, no. So what do you think we should do with that? No, but I, I think part of it is just investing the time to really figure out what it takes to make a living from your passion mm -hmm. because I think many are just so driven by the art itself or whatever that they are not really thinking about well how can I create awareness for my art how do I connect with customers yeah. um, and that's ultimately going to be what's required to make a living from it yeah. not just you know being yeah. a great artist but yeah. earning money from that that, <laughs> that talent yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you actually share also kind of align with my passion. Like, I did not just abandon my corporate job because dance is fun. You know, mm -hmm. it's not worth my time. <laughs> what I learned is there's a huge gap between the medical research behind creative arts therapy. You know, for example, some of these data you might want interesting to know. Dancing reduces the dementia by 76%. Mm. That's a 21-year research. Wow. Uh, another research published by University of Sydney, which is indicating dancing reduced cardiovascular death by 46%. That's mm. 48,000 patients for 20 years in UK, right? And so my mission is really educate the public, even like, you know, going through this whole interview process. It's like create an ecosystem where um, the artists are actually being educated. Like, you know, not only they do the art, it can also provide these, one of the most ancient healing modality for a patient who struggle and stuck at home for the elderly, who have proven music and dance are the only two medium able to get into dementia's point, mm. you know, like allow the whole ecosystem able to connect, bridging the creative arts and the healthcare. So artists can get paid, you know, yep. the patient can benefit from it. Healthcare has money, but a lot of money goes to drugs developments and you know this different high cost of different kind of um, uh, procedures where you could adopt one of the cheapest way of healing, <laughs> you know, that proven, you know, through long centuries and proven by medical research. 
you know um so yeah so this is why like you know i'm doing what i'm doing i'm following my passion i'm still struggling you know in some senses you know trying to figure out how to navigate a healthcare innovation system which is why i bring experts like you to kind of share you know really kind of create an ecosystem a global network of leaders able to share your insights how do you get out of your challenges so other people can learn mm. you know like from you if they want to create innovation in their organization you know because i learned to achieve what i'm committed to for my second life i'm one person's not enough you know it's more important to bring everybody into conversation so we can really right. create that change all together yes yeah now we'll learn a lot faster together than if we're just uh, in, yeah. in, on our own. So Yeah, exactly. And so do you have any three powerful words to give to our audience? Oh, I think I, <laughs> I already... Uh, That's what word of wisdom. Pa passion is, is my first word. Yeah. Uh, pull is my second word. How do you pull cool. people to you, I attract like people to you, given your passion and yeah. to help you and to help themselves? And uh, it's then I think curiosity, which is this ability to ask questions yeah. so that you're pulling people to you because they're really intrigued by that question yes. and want to help answer it. So Wow, I love that. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Okay, okay, enjoy the rest of the Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. All right, bye. Stage 4 Show fan, I hope you loved this interview. COVID-19 made me realize that wisdom from these top industry leaders is invaluable for dealing with uncertainty and building resilience. When you share our show, you're helping change lives too. I love you and I'll see you in the next show. Stage 4 is an educational arm of Dance for Healing. Check out our COVID-19 initiative at www.stage.com iv.org and www.dance4healing.com